0: This episode of The Wrong Station is brought to you in partnership with Woe Begone. Woe Begone is the story of Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible and an exploration of what it means to seek, to maintain, and to use power. For fans of eccentric, single-person narrated audio dramas like the Magnus Archives with a queer perspective and lens, new episodes can be listened to every Wednesday, each with a brand new, all-original soundtrack. You can find Woe spelt Woe spelled woe.begone, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. And thank you for supporting both shows.
1: working power in the
0: Incredible as they seem, are not the results of
1: massive stereo.
0: You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station.
1: It's dangerous to face them alone. You must have others with you, others you trust, even if it puts them in danger. That's what
0: Loudon's told me when I first became the catcher. The old man nodded to
1: himself, candlelight filled and drained from the lines around his mouth. Yes, they can have surprises for a man alone. Around their kind, it is best never to be alone. Through the long years of my
0: apprenticeship... We always followed this rule. Too large a group will drive them away. A small group will draw them. They will think they can separate a little group and get them, one by one. Their kind are crafty, and though they lack many of our powers, they have tricks we do not understand. This is where it is important to have trust. I remember once, not long after I'd begun with Laudens, I must have been thirteen or fourteen, a bad time to deal with their kind. But a catcher must start young so he can learn his mistakes before his master dies and this was in the town of das harnalve a grim village i have had occasioned too many times to visit one of them had become unstuck from death and was haunting the creek bed running from the culvert where her body had been found we were told she had been murdered by a drifter it is a lie i have heard many times since still though we pitied the girl she'd become a thing of death, and had already lured one of her classmates to a drowning. And so Loudens, as catcher, and I, as the catcher's boy, were obligated to send her down again. In that flint-hearted town, Loudens only knew one person he trusted, a widow who had been a childhood friend. When first I met her, she gave me a sad look and tousled my hair, saying I was the same age as her granddaughter and shouldn't have to deal with such things. I was scornful at the time, because it was an honor to be a catcher's boy, but later I would remember and hang my head. Our fourth was the parish priest. He said it was his duty to come with us, though Loudons
1: tried to talk him out of it. He was young, soft-looking. See the circles under his eyes? See how his hands shake? He knows who did the murder, but was too cowardly to do anything about it. That's why he feels he has to come fool. Putting away the girl's ghost won't make him any less haunted. Loudon sniffed, looking into the woods. Still, I don't want to go with just the three of us. Best to have a fourth. But keep an eye on him. He's the kind the dead like to lead astray.
0: We waited until nightfall. It was autumn. A damp breeze chuckled through the forest. The moon was a slim sickle the widow said it was a good night for ghosts. I think she knew. She had that look, the one suggesting she had ghosts of her own. And besides, I could feel it too, that sense of presence in the dark. We entered the woods, carrying small lanterns. This was dangerous, for the dead may kill a little flame, but a larger flame may drive them back. Bloudins wanted to finish the task that night. In the flickering glow, the priest looked pale. Stay close. Don't Wander off. Loudens gave me a stern look. Keep an eye on him. I nodded. The wind picked up, flinging damp brown leaves into our faces. We came to the stream. Moonlight murmured on its surface. Someone was gibbering in the woods, but when we whipped our heads around, the sound died away. Only the wind muttered in the branches.
1: Are we close to the culvert? The widow nodded. Yes, can you feel it, boy? I gulped nodding.
0: The presence of the dead filled me with sick unease. I wanted to shout, find light, and sit singing with my hands over my ears. But there were no lights. My lantern guttered out. I yelped, jumping toward Loudon's. The widow ran to me, taking my lantern and giving me her own. Shaking, she fumbled with a match. It would not strike in the clammy air. Loudon's lifted his lantern, casting the glow as wide as he could. The match caught. My lantern's reluctant wick took flame. The widow raised it. The wind died down. And when we looked around, the priest was gone. Reverend! No response came from the woods. We called again, and again in vain. It was my fault. We have to look for him. It was my fault. I'll, I'll go. You two go on ahead. But before I realized what I was saying, Loudon's hand came down on my shoulder. No, sir. We stick together. I realized what I had almost done.
1: Shame washed over me, tricked by the dead. Put it out of your mind. Focus on the task at hand. If you distract yourself with guilt, she can take advantage.
0: I nodded, suddenly cold. I wanted to go home, but I had no home. I realized then that Loudon's was my home. For a moment, the thought made me feel warm again. Come, let us finish this. We followed the stream bed uphill. Shallow water burbled over rocks. Ahead, a culvert gaped in the hillside. A faint blueness flickered from within.
1: We are here. Stand together.
0: With his arm around me, and the widow on my other side, Loudon stepped forward into the stream. Spirit, we have come to your place. The wind rose. We stepped closer. The flicker waxed. I caught my breath. I see you. She turned toward us. She floated upside down. White dead eyes stared up
1: at us below her blue lips. Spirit, it is time for you to leave. This is not your place. It is time for you to go.
0: The chuckling rose in the woods. She floated toward us, grinning. Her arms which lay up along her sides, cranked forward at a ninety-degree angle, her fingers with their cracked and jagged nails curled into claws.
1: Spirit, we cast you out. We stand together, commanding you to leave.
0: She floated higher, out of the culvert, until her head was at the level of our heads, her feet high above, her knees bending against the joints so her feet hooked down toward us.
1: By the power of the woods and leaves, by the power of the sun and sky, by the power of the rains and sea, we cast you out. Her grin widened, her dead eyes
0: shone. She reached out to grasp and wrench Loudon's throat.
1: By the powers of the
0: ancient world... She seized him, her white fingers squeezed. He struggled for the words, he could not speak. The woods echoed with laughter as he went pale. The widow fell back, slipping in the stream. Her lamp went out. Fear and anger blazed white inside of me. By the power of fear and love and hope and hate, thing, I cast you out! And seizing the dead wrist, which burned like ice, I squeezed as hard as I could and wrenched in a direction I could not see and flung the spirit. The flicker went out. The night was quiet. Loudon's lamp had also fallen. Only mine still burned. The old man steadied himself on my shoulder and the widow rushed forward to wrapping in her arms.
1: <laughs> that is why it is best not to face the dead
0: alone. And the next day, when the bruises were black on his throat, and the townsfolk of Das Ranalve fished the reverend's body from the creek, laudens put his hand on my shoulder and said to me,
1: That, too, is why a man should not face the dead alone.
0: <laughs> I think he knew then what a fool his apprentice was. Years later, I would ask what a catcher could do if they had no choice but to face the dead alone. By this time, I was in my twenties. I was married, and though my wife and I never truly loved each other, we shared a beautiful son, a golden-skinned boy who reminded me, so painfully, of my own dead father. Both my wife's father and mine had been soldiers. They had died in the Second Civil War. From the time her womb was heavy, she had wanted our boy to be a soldier, And indeed, he seemed drawn to all things martial. From the earliest age, he loved stories about generals and battles. When he was a little older, he would take his grandfather's medals down from the walls to admire them when we were out of the room. Once, when he sat in the living room sun, with a portrait of my father on the wall behind him, he tilted his head in such a way that both of them shared the same pose. It made me catch my breath. My mother was staying with us at the time. She saw what I saw. And her eyes filled with tears later she told me she wished my father had lived to see his grandson because they looked so alike she thought it would have taught him to love himself i asked what she meant and she told me my father had always hated his appearance this made me laugh my father was handsome not like me it was because he thought he looked so much like the general they did look alike for all that my father's coffin had carried the white cross of the abolitionist league and his infamous ancestor had won crushing victories in the name of slavery. I could only imagine an abolitionist soldier looking in the mirror every day of his life and seeing only the face of a war criminal. If only he could have met his grandson. Maybe he could have learned to see himself the way his wife and son saw him, the way we saw the boy who looked so much like him. Sometimes, sitting on the porch and watching my boy play in the sun, I would hear Loudon's words in my head, you must have
1: others with you, even if it puts them in danger.
0: I could not imagine asking my golden boy to face such things as the girl in the culvert. The thought sickened me. And so, when I was nearly ready to begin my own practice as a catcher, I asked Loudens, what to do if a catcher had to face the dead alone. He frowned, poking at the fire. We were camped by the side of the road. A hint had been spotted in the next town. He shouldn't. But if he has to? He should turn back and return with more people. But if that's not an option? It is always an option. For the sake of argument, Louden stared into the
1: fire for a long time. Courage and wisdom can cast out the dead. Anger and determination may also serve, but strongest against them is the love and solidarity between the living. In the absence of living people who love and trust, the Catcher must look... elsewhere.
0: I looked at him, surprised. Among the dead? There
1: are many there who love you. Your father, grandparents, teachers, friends. Those who loved you in life will come if you call them. If you have strong allies among the virtuous dead, they may help you against the wicked kind. But... There is a trap. In the ancient world, it was shamans and witch doctors who played the role of catcher, and for them, ancestor worship was a powerful tool. Yet not all ancestors are good ancestors, and though they may come to the aid of their own blood, it does not make them virtuous dead. It
0: was the soundest of advice, and yet sometimes we do not have the luxury of following good advice. And worse, sometimes we have the evil luck to be human. Whew, it is chilly out. Fortunately, you've just arrived at your favorite cafe, and they've already got your regular order piping hot and waiting just for you. That's right, a nice warm mug of... The Wrong Station Patreon. With a sprinkle of cinnamon. Delicious. Delicious. And those maggots at the bottom are just an added little treat. Click the link in the description and sign up for a seven-day free trial today. We know you already like the taste. Some years later, Loudons died. Against all expectations, it was simply old age. A peaceful death. A quiet funeral. The widow of Das Harnalve gave the eulogy. My wife did not attend. She had left me, taking the boy with her when he was eight. Truly, in a life filled with ghasts and grisly sights, it was that evening I returned home to find the house empty that haunted me the most. Of course, she had found someone else. It was convenience which had brought us together, and I spent long weeks on the road. But the loss of my son cut my heart. All those times I had missed christmases and birthdays i told myself the two of us would someday go fishing together and talk about the past and future now he was gone to a distant town and soon to board it centering a military academy my mother too had died shortly after loudons i was suddenly very alone in the world i knew then that i had been a fool but did i change my ways no A saner man would have thrown aside his work and made time to build a relationship with his son, but I, instead, flung myself into the catcher's life. I went town to town, never returning to that empty house and a shoeing company. I treated strangers rudely. Few would follow the bitter man I had become into the danger of haunted places, and so I began dispatching the dead by myself, and for five years I proved Loudon's wrong. I banished the specter of green gardens. I cast out the De at Brandt Mausoleum, who had killed seventeen children in as many hours. I rid Taman City of its night stalker, whose arms and legs remained skeletal though the body became swollen by the blood of its victims into a crimson balloon. I did it all alone, what no other catcher could do with help. But in the fifth year came the business with Dalmore Manor. How shall I describe Dalmor? you may already have a picture of it in your mind. A sprawling gothic monstrosity, the walls black with mold, sewers dank with rot, and Aragon sour with death. She was the Lady of Dalmor. She returned every five years, on the anniversary of her death, to stalk the manor's ancient grounds. In life, she'd walled up at least a dozen of her maids, and later was supposed to have removed some of their bodies and eaten them. In death she was worse. In the last hundred years, three catchers and fifteen other souls had died trying to cast her out. Yet I, in my hubris, went alone. Of course, the door shut itself behind me. Its slow creak echoed in the silent house. I walked carefully, following the beams that underlay the floorboards. It's a favorite trick of the dead to lure the living onto moldy boards and then trap them and their broken legs in the understory of buildings. But I knew the look of such things. I kept my feet. In a distant room, a harpsichord began to play. I ignored it. The temperature dropped. My breath began to fog, but I was dressed in heavy black wool and a catcher's fleece cloak. I came to a bleeding stairwell and splashed down through rivulets of gore. I came to a hallway. Screams and the pounding of bloody palms sounded against the walls on either side. Skeletal arms burst through, grasping at me through the panels. I turned sideways and edged past them. I came to a drawing room. The clock struck three in the morning, yet I had entered only minutes earlier, at a quarter past nine. A green fire roiled in the fireplace, producing a vile light. I sank into the moldering velvet of a divan to wait. Above the fire hung a portrait. A beautiful woman sat with a young boy on her lap. They looked happy, though I knew she had later lowered him down into a well and left him to die. Abandoned. Something that, just as surely, I had done to my own son. I felt the strength go out of me. A high-pitched noise rang in my ears. Clear, viscous fluid began pulsing down the walls. A woman's footsteps rang on the ceiling. I stood. I call you out! Laughter echoed through the room and the green flame flared up. Show yourself. And the Lady of Dalmoor manifested in front of me. Floating in the air, she wore a red dress over red exposed flesh. In death, her body had been warped. Her teeth had grown long and branched like white antlers in a distended jaw. Her eyes had gone blue from the lack of sunlight. Her arms had grown an extra joint. They now ended in a nest of sharp black phalanges. I cast you out, by the field and trees, by the moon and the water brooks, by the dust and the rain cloud, I cast you out. She paid no heed, but drifted down toward me, laughter throbbing in my ears. A note of panic entered my voice. Where was my strength? I tried to call upon it. It would not come. By the iron and oak, by the silver and rowan, I cast you out. She lighted before me placing a palm on either side of my face looking up at me like a lover as she swayed her hips to the harpsichord music which now crashed through the ceiling by the old powers and the powers yet to be return to death i command you and she said no she took me by the shoulders and flung me to the floor i screamed as my ankle snapped on the cellar floor and she landed on top of me licking my neck with a cold sharp tongue "'Laudence!' I shouted, struggling as she pushed down on my chest. "'Come to me. Help me, please!' And though I felt his presence, the Lady of Dalmor laughed, pressing the air out of me. "'Come to me. Father. Mother. Save me from the dead!' I felt them, as warm as a heartbeat, but still, the Lady was too strong. I felt my ribs begin to splinter. In seconds I would pass out. "'All of you. All of my ancestors. I call you now!' The pressure in the room dropped. Something new was with us. The Lady of Dalmor howled, An iron power dragged her off of me. A shadow roiled in the air, and the lady, with her awful fangs and gruesome claws hauled into it, was swallowed, crushed, and dropped like a red rag to sink into the floor. A different laughter filled the air, not manic, but slow and satisfied. Ah, yes. The darkness touched down beside me, coalescing into the form of a gray, skeletal man. Mirth glimmered in his empty gray sockets, and he preened his still-rich mustache and chops, whose gold matched the braid on his tattered uniform. You're him. The general. He showed me the rotten shards of his teeth. Maggots flashed as they writhed among them. There I am. I reached out trying to feel the presence of Loudens and the other virtuous dead, but they were gone. I thank you. You may return now. But the corpse laughed again. (laughs) (laughs) Sonny, I think not. And then a breeze picked up that came and went to nowhere. His form was dissolved, and he went out into the world. Broken and hypothermic, I dragged myself from Dalmore and collapsed. I awoke in hospital. Having no visitors, I spent two weeks reading the paper. A brushfire war had broken out on the border. It barely registered to me, for the papers convulsed with the general's exploits. These were hidden in the back pages, behind splashy stories from the front. Little, unconnected tales. A home invasion in Tamman City. A tour group missing at a historic battlefield, an obituary for an old woman who had fallen violently in the washroom. They seemed unconnected. Maybe they were, but behind these disjointed tragedies I saw the haunting hand of the general and heard his deep, cold laughter. A unifying theme of these deaths, all victims were descendants of abolitionists. On the fourteenth day, I was surprised by a knock on the door, a young woman with dark hair and a gold-skinned baby on her hip. I asked who she was. She said she was my daughter-in-law, which meant that the child. I felt a catch in my throat. Boiling tears sprang to my eyes. I looked away. She had read about Dalmor in the paper. I asked if my son was with her. She cast down her eyes. No, she said. He had been posted to the border. He was missing in action. I told her I thought he would be all right. When she said nothing, I lied, saying I would know if he were dead. Yet, for all my empty cheer, the image hung between us of a battle-scarred patch of wasteland out beyond the border and a gold-skinned hand reaching from the sand of some shallow grave. I would not believe it. Not him, not my golden boy. Even now, even after facing death at the manor, I thought we would have time for fishing. The next day I left the hospital. On the newspaper's second page was a story about the mysterious death of a young man from an abolitionist family. A married father, about the age of my own missing son. I was already in the next town when I called my daughter-in-law and told her what I was going to do. She told me I was still too ill and that I should go back. She was right, but I hung up. I needed advice, and I could think of only one person to give it, and he was dead. On the edge of the next town, a murdered child had taken to haunting a willow tree. Staggering from the train station at nightfall, I went to the tree alone, and found pale threads wrapping around my neck, wrists and ankles hoisting me into the boughs. The cords tightened. My vision flickered. Near death, I called out for the virtuous dead, for Loudens, and felt him come just as I lost consciousness. I came to, a moment later. A pale figure like a bank of fog in the shape of a man, Deliquest in the moonlight. Loudunce, don't go yet. You know what I have done. I am a fool, Loudunce. I must return him to the dead.
1: But I do not know how. It is dangerous to face the
0: dead alone. Loudens, I must. I have no one left.
1: I have driven them all away or, or lost them.
0: A breeze picked up. Loudon's misty form was disappearing quickly.
1: Then you must call upon all your allies among the dead. I already called upon my
0: ancestors. It's how this all began. But it was too late. He was gone. I was alone. I sat with my back to the willow tree, my head in my hands. After a moment, I realized I wasn't weeping with sadness, but with burning tears of self-hatred. It was all I could do to stop my teeth from grinding into talk, and then I began to laugh. Because a rage at myself was also a rage at the things that had made me so vile, contemptible, and in pain. It was a rage I could use to banish the General. It seemed a worthy plan at the time. Now I know I was bent on not only the General's destruction, but also my own, and in such a mood. I arrived the next evening at the battlefield of Chardon Oaks. During the First Civil War, the general had crushed abolitionist forces at Chardon Oaks and had his men save ammunition by bayoneting 600 prisoners. For the better part of a century, this had been taught in textbooks as an act of level-headed pragmatism. After the Second War, the one that took my father's life, we began printing textbooks that showed what bayonet wounds looked like. Now, Chardon Oaks was just a slopping field, with a stand of old trees at the high end. A monument to the executed prisoner stood among the moonlit grass and clover. Some inhuman force had smashed it in two. The desecration made me sick. I reached for that rage I'd felt beneath the willow tree, but found it slippery. The enormity of the crime that had been committed here filled me with only a tired despair. I hesitated resting a hand against the cool marble of the monument. I heard Loudon's voice in my head. It is always an option. I considered going back, but then the wind picked up. A shadow drew across the moon. A coil of cold air crept down the neck of my shirt. Is the general here? The ground moved beneath my feet. Blood welled up out of the soil, sopping it into a crimson mud that began to suck me down. If he is here, I call on him to show himself. A low chuckle sounded behind me. I whirled around. Nobody was there. And what right do you have to call upon me? The voice came from the empty air. Clouds thickened into a red filter over the moon. The right of blood. You are no blood of mine. I spent my life fighting cowards like you. It is my blood and my birthright, much as we both may hate it. It was now cold as ice. The red mud sucked up over my ankles. Pale things sloshed through it. Skeletal mouths surfaced to gasp and moan for help before being dragged back down. A sound like ribs on bayonets echoed out into the night. I smelt smoke. The darkness thickened before me. A glint of gold braid, a gray gleam in the edges of broken teeth suggested themselves in the gloom. A breath like the floor of a slaughterhouse washed over me. Spirit, I cast you out. I took hold of his flesh and tried to hurl him through the other side, but my palms burned with cold, and he laughed as I fell back against the sinking monument, slithering in gory mud as I tried to regain my feet.
1: A hundred and twenty years
0: have passed me out of this country, son, and you won't either. By the wood. And the stone i cast you out by justice and vengeance he laughed A scarlet quag wrapped around my calves a dead soldier at me with snapped off fingers trying to drag himself up i kicked him away but slipped as the monument tilted on liquefying earth the mud grasped my thighs by all that is wrong with you and all that is wrong with me i cast you out only one of us has something wrong with him son i grabbed hold of the monument with both hands but my weight only made it sink more quickly. The ancient corpses squelched and groaned around me, and the general cackled.
1: They can't help you. I killed them
0: in love to me. I call on my father, my mother, on Loudon's, on all of my ancestors for help. Please, please come. I felt them around me, like thin figures of golden mist. I felt my mother's love, Loudon's grisly determination my father's rage against the man he'd spent his whole life hating. But even with their help, I was borne down into the slime, to the waist, ribs, and shoulders by that iron power. Is that all you have, ghost catcher? Is there no other power you can call upon? Then you are dead. And I will walk this earth and turn it back to my will. Mud poured into my ears and lapped around the edges of my mouth. The monument veered overhead, half-submerged like a drowning ship. The dead writhed around me, mewling for help. It was only then that I realized with anguish what Loudon's had meant by the willow tree. All my allies among the dead. No, General, there is one more power. And then, with an agony and a shameful relief that I cannot describe... He was there i smelled the summer grass we had smelled together from the balcony i heard his laughter as a child i closed my eyes against the searing rush of tears and when i opened them again they were all gone my parents and loudons the general and my heart my boy as well I was alone under the moonlight, half submerged in mud beside the toppled cenograph. I dragged myself out and lay panting, alone again. I never found out what happened to my son. A few months after his disappearance, my daughter-in-law gave birth to his daughter. She takes after her grandfather, small and dark, delighting in dark things and dark places. It is strange how these things go. It is strange to see one's own ghost when one is still alive. I do not know what this story of mine means. I suppose one could take many things from it, as one can from every story. But maybe there is this to consider. The past is not dead, and we live in a world of ghosts. And though the future has great power over the past, the past cannot be laid to rest without sacrifice, and should never be faced alone. But that's enough of my drab philosophy. The moon is out, and the mists are rising. My grandchildren already sit in rocking chairs on the balcony. I'm going to go and tell them a ghost story. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. This week's episode, The Catcher was written by Alexander Saxton and featured Thomas Goff as Loudens. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at thewrongstation@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and JacobBRDS. Tune in next Sunday evening for our latest episode, Farther Than Semarkand. Until next time, thank you for listening.